Good morning. My name is Adam Venable, and I'm the RUF campus minister over on the campus of UAB, not too far from here. And there's a, there's a first time for everything. Last night, I had my first nightmare before I was going to come preach at Red Mountain Church. First time this, this has ever happened to me. And uh, the first thing that went wrong in my dream was that I forgot when I was supposed to stand up and preach. And so it was during the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I run up front to say, hey, stop. I forgot to give the sermon. Uh, you know, Matt, Matt, please sit down. And so I, I started to try and preach my sermon. Then I realized that I have forgotten my notes. I have no notes. But I have a large stack of papers up here on a podium or something. And I'm frantically throwing paper around trying to find my notes for my sermon. But I just can't find them. So after five or ten minutes, of course, everyone out there is nervous, I finally just start talking. But then I can't get five or six words out uh, before someone, well, one of you comes up to help me. You, you come up to ask me, how can I help, Adam? Where's your notes? Can I help you find your notes? And uh, so this morning, this is already going much, much better <laughs> than I, I dreamed that it could last night. Um, but... In all seriousness, we are ending our sermon series on Romans this morning. This is our final sermon from the book of Romans. We've been working our way through it for eight months or so, and we're in chapter 16, the last part of it. And we have spent uh, the first half of Romans looking at what is the good news. What's the finished work of Jesus Christ for the world? And then the last half of Romans, how does this matter in your life? And here at the end of Romans... Paul ends this epistle with what's called a doxology, a doxology. So this sermon is all about how we should glorify God because he is the one who is able to strengthen us. We should give God glory because he's able to strengthen us. And uh, if you'll remember, Paul's writing this letter to uh, actual Christians who are living in Rome 2,000 years ago. Rome is a city uh, of almost a million people, so think like Charlotte or Denver in terms of the population. And he's writing this letter from Corinth to the Christians in Rome in order to strengthen them. And Christians at this time are very much a minority in Rome. Uh, That would be putting it mildly to call them a minority here in Rome. And so look with me as I read. This is Romans 16, 25 to 27. And it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, I pray now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together uh, pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's frame this passage like this. Let's look at what is doxology, and then why does it matter? What is doxology, and then why does it matter? So first, 
What is doxology? And you see at the very end of the passage, he ends it this way, to the only wise God be glory forever. And so doxology is essentially ascribing to God the glory that he deserves. That's what doxology is, ascribing to God the glory that he deserves. Um, It's giving God the weightiness that's appropriate to him. It's having regard for him as maximally important. Docs, I don't know if Doug Clapp is uh, in in here this morning, but uh, I I think I'm getting this right. Docs is Latin for glory, and then uh, the the, the logi at the end is Latin for the study of. Okay, So it's the study of God's glory. That's what doxology means. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He is taking his heart, and like a bow and arrow, he's aiming his heart at the glory of God and giving him maximal importance, giving God all the weightiness that he deserves in his mind and in his heart. And uh, you already know how to do this. You you don't need me to to tell you how to glorify things. Um, In my own life, I think about watching old Alabama football reruns on YouTube. Uh, my wife sometimes laughs at me. To, uh, you know, she'll come in. I'm on YouTube just watching an Alabama game from, I don't know, seven years ago or something. Or one of my favorite things to do now is to listen to. Uh, I got a record player for Christmas, and so I love to put on a record that I've bought lately. It's been Miles Davis "Blue and Green," and I just put that on, and I could listen to it every single day. And my heart and my mind is just aimed at that good thing in creation. And you know how to do that, right? Uh, that's why you, you love to uh, go through those food blogs and, and just to absorb yourself in them. We aim our hearts and our minds at things. We do it naturally. You don't have to be taught to do that. And here in this passage, the Apostle Paul has aimed his heart and his mind at the living God. To give him the glory, the weightiness that he deserves. Why? Two things. Because of God's wisdom and because of God's power. God is wise and he's powerful. And you see it here when he mentions um, that this gospel, it's a mystery. It's a secret. that's now been revealed. It was kept secret for long ages. Now it's been revealed. And this is what the wisdom of God is looks like. And, you know, we tend to think about knowledge in terms of just brute facts. Like you say someone's very smart. You mean they did great on the SAT. Uh, They have a high IQ. They know a lot of stuff. I was watching Steve Jobs, that movie on Netflix. And um, I'm not recommending you all go out and watch it today. There's some uh, dirty words in it. But uh, other than that, like nothing too crazy. Um, But in this movie about Steve Jobs, at one point it becomes very clear, and I'm not picking on Steve Jobs. This is not a Steve Jobs problem. This is a human problem. That he knew a lot of things, but he didn't know how to love with his knowledge. He didn't know how to be generous and kind with the things that he knew. He knew a lot of facts. And humanity is full of that, right? We know a lot of things, but we don't know how to be generous with it. And this mystery that was kept hidden from all ages that's now been revealed, God is saying, this is what it looks like for God to know. It looks like for him to take something hidden and to make it known to the whole world. 
to take something that he could have kept for himself, which was the love of God, and to give it out to everyone that will believe in his son. And so this knowledge, this wisdom that God has, it's surprising. And it's generous because we don't deserve it. And if you're here this morning, especially if you're not a Christian and you're here, you kind of have an advantage over us who are Christians in thinking about why is God's love, why is his knowledge surprising? You know, if you've ever thought this, you know, I could never be a Christian. I I just, I'm not that good of a person. Like, I'm not a good boy or a good girl. Um, I, I just don't think I could ever be a Christian. The surprising thing about the wisdom of God is that he brings people from all over the world who otherwise wouldn't know him and wouldn't belong to him and wouldn't be in his kingdom. He takes those people and he brings them in. In the Old Testament, God's covenant was just for the Jews. But the prophets foretold a time when Jesus would come and the wisdom of God would reveal his love to the whole world. And it's surprising that he did that because he didn't have to do it. God doesn't owe you one thing, nothing. And instead, he's given you everything in Jesus Christ. And that is what it looks like for God to know and to be full of of wisdom and full of knowledge. And let me just stop and say one thing about this. Sometimes I think we think about growing as a Christian as getting more knowledge in our heads. And Presbyterians, we don't have a problem knowing more things. Like, most of you have read all the books. You've listened to all the sermons. Uh, We know the catechism. God isn't just giving us more stuff to know. He has given us a person. What does Paul say that he preached? Paul says that his preaching was Jesus Christ. He came preaching a person. And what it looks like to know God is to know God personally. Have a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. So he's wise. That's why Paul glorified God. But he's also powerful. It says that he's able to strengthen you. The implication is that if God is able to strengthen you, he is full of power. And that's why Paul's glorifying God. I had a roommate when I lived in New Mexico, when I was an RUF intern at New Mexico State. And this roommate, great guy. Um, I, I know him to this day. And he would break out into the doxology, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He would break out into this in our apartment whenever he would uh, like cook something really good or whenever he would do well on a test or that girl he asked out, she said, yes, doxology at the apartment that night. (laughs) And that's normal and good. And I think like baseline spirituality all over the world, you don't have to be Christian to know this. When good things happen to you in life, you tend to want to thank God for it. Um, The hurricane didn't hit our house. Even someone who's not a Christian will stop and thank God. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But the power of God revealed in this passage is not that. The power of God revealed in this passage, it's not good things happening to you in your life. But it's a good person being sent for you. It's the good one, Jesus Christ, being sent to you. And that's the power of God that Paul is in awe of that enables him to worship and to glorify God, even in the midst of hard circumstances. The power of God that Paul's talking about here is the power of God in the gospel. The gospel which saves 
ordinary people like you and like me. The gospel means good news. And it's good news because it is so big and it's so powerful. It's good news that's bigger than cancer. And it's good news that's bigger than sleepless nights. It is good news that's so powerful that it's bigger than disappointment in your family. It is good news that's bigger than disappointment in your marriage or with your children. Um, In the midst of the fire of addiction, it is good news that says, I'm the living water. That's what Jesus said. I'm the living water and I will rescue you. In the midst of a flood of self-condemnation and shame, it's good news that says, I have got a rescue boat and I will rescue you and I'll put love in your heart. In the midst of a loneliness, crippling loneliness, it is the power of God to say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's how powerful God is. He's eternal, the passage says. And that's why Paul has taken his heart and aimed it right at God, the living God that has the power to save. Um, There's a website I was on recently, eon.com. I'm not on there a lot, but it's a news and information website kind of that leans progressive. And they had an article there and they were talking about how to be happy. What, What does it mean to be happy? How can we follow happiness? And on the one hand, people tend to think about happiness in terms of just peak experiences. You know, this is uh, the millennial thing to do, I think. Uh, I want to climb the mountain. I want to swim through the waterfall. I want to, I don't know, ride with the dolphins in uh, the Caribbean. That's how I can be happy. But that doesn't really work. And then other people say, well, it's, it's just about having balance. You don't want to be too crazy about any one thing. So try to balance, you know, uh, Love uh, romance a little bit, but not too much. Love your children a little bit, but not too much. Find some balance in your life. Do you know what the Apostle Paul would say? He would say that you've got a a summum bonum, uh, a highest good. There's something that exists that you can give your whole heart to completely. And instead of taking life from you, ordinarily if you give your whole heart to something, it it will take life from you eventually. It won't give it. But you have a highest good, someone that you can aim your heart at, and it will give you life. And the more you seek to live for his glory, Paul is saying, the more you'll have life. That's what doxology is. It is aiming our heart at God and ascribing maximum importance to him. You are the one that's able to save me, God. Doxology. Why does it matter And I just want to say three things here. Why does it matter? And the first thing is that it shows us who we are made to be. It shows us who we were made to be. And let me try to frame it like this. Why do you go to work? Um, Is it to uh, kind of leave a legacy so that your children can be safe and not have too much to worry about? Is it to simply make more money? Um, money's not a bad thing. It's good to have money. You have to have it to survive. Is it to put, just to put bread on the table um, to feed your family? Why do you go to work? 
And what Paul would say is that all of life is meant to be lived for God's glory. Whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or an investment banker, that we should consider, what would it look like for me to do this to the glory of God? And it looks different for a lot of us. But the first step might be simply asking Jesus, Jesus, what would it look like for me to do my work in a way that it's not about me, but it's about you? Or think about uh, marriage for a minute. What would it look like for us, those of you who are married, I know it's not all of you, but what would it look like for us as married people to start to pray, Heavenly Father, help me to see what it would look like to be in this marriage Not just so that all my felt needs get met all the time, but so that you are glorified, so that you become the most important thing in my marriage. And there's lots of ways to do this. One one practical way um, that's been helpful to me is to, to keep a Bible on the nightstand in the bedroom. And before you go to bed at night, pull it out and read a psalm and pray. And if I can do that three nights a week, that's a win. I mean, I'm aiming for every night, but three nights a week, that's a win. Uh, Let's think about parenting for a minute. What's your goal with your kids or your grandkids? What do you really want for them? And I think many times it's simply for them to like us, for them to be uh, happy and healthy and educated, to know their catechism. The New Testament is full of people who know the Bible and were raised around the Bible, but they don't know what it's like to live for God's glory and not our own. What would it look like for us to lean into more and more? We want our kids to live for God's glory. We want our kids to be able to aim their minds and their hearts, not at having all their felt needs met all the time, but to dive into the wisdom and the power of God so that we want to praise his name. It shows us who we were made to be. But second, I think the thing that doxology shows us is how far short we fall. It shows us how far short that we fall. We were made to live for God's glory. How are we doing with that? How are you doing? God made you. That's who he made you to be, to live for his glory. How's it going? And I think that Birmingham really provides a great picture of of how we're doing. You know, Birmingham is full of amazing things. Um, There are amazing discoveries going on in Birmingham, and there's renewal and rejuvenation going on in Birmingham. It's a great city to live in. There are also dark places in Birmingham. There are places that I don't want to go. There are places that are not safe, that are full of injustice. And our hearts are a lot like that. My heart and your heart. There are places in our hearts where we don't want to glorify God. Where we simply want to live for ourselves. What would be good for me in this situation? And after all, I mean, I deserve it, right? Um, I deserve for the world to revolve around me. There are parts of our hearts that still operate just like that. Think about this. Verse 25 says, Now to him he's able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Sometimes I like to think about our our confessed theology versus our lived theology. We, We would confess, a lot of us, 
To him who's able to strengthen you, according to my gospel. We would say, yes, Jesus, you are the one who can strengthen me. You're the only one that can do that. But in practice, um, we might say something like, you know, another late night at the office, that is what will give me strength. If only my children would like me, maybe that's what would strengthen me. Um, One more glass of bourbon, that's what I need to strengthen me. Our confessed theology versus our real theology. We were meant to live for God's glory, and it shows us how far short we really fall. And finally, what's the good news? Um, The doxology shows us the good news of the gospel. If you're here this morning, and you realize that you haven't lived for God's glory ever, or not as often as you know that you should, what's the good news for you if you haven't lived for God's glory? The good news for you is that you are the kind of person that Jesus died for. You are the kind of person that the mercy and the grace of God is for. You are a lot like the Apostle Paul. What kind of person can God rescue from a life lived only for himself and bring into his kingdom to start to live for God's glory? Paul dragged Christians away to have them executed. That's the kind of life that the Apostle Paul lived. And now he finds himself with his heart and his mind aimed at the glory of God. And so if that's you this morning, what if you pray to Jesus, Jesus, I I don't live for your glory. Would you help me to, to start to love you? Help me to see you as beautiful, more beautiful than I thought. So that I I could aim my heart and my mind at you to give you the glory, to study your glory. Because as we give glory to God, we get the benefits of his glory. We get the benefits of it. And he will sustain us in plenty and in want and in happiness and in sadness. I'll end with this. I I was reading something this week and it pointed me to a piece on the Atlantic recently. And this piece is about maintaining hope in the midst of decline. And the article contrasts Darwin, Charles Darwin, with J.S. Bach, the composer. And in the article it pointed this out, I didn't know this, that Charles Darwin during his life was a celebrity scientist. I mean, he was wanted all over the world. To speak, and he was churning out research again and again and again. But once he reached middle aged, and uh, he couldn't do the research that he wanted to do, as he wasn't able to do it, and he couldn't churn out new findings, his celebrity status went down. And Charles Darwin ended his life feeling like he had no meaning or no purpose, because he was what he did. And when he could no longer do it, he had no meaning or purpose in his life. Bach, different story. Bach went through something similar. He was a celebrity composer, a celebrity organist uh, during his heyday. But at a point, and uh, even because of the popularity of his son's music, the style of music that was 
popular, when Bach was most popular, like everything else, it changed. And when it changed, it left Bach behind. And he was no longer in demand, the way that he once was. And his career, in a lot of ways, was in decline. Bach still had an immeasurable hope and value and meaning to his life. Because, and the person that wrote the article, I don't think was a Christian, because he kind of skimmed over this like, that probably didn't matter a whole lot. Bach wrote that he did everything in, in his career, everything, to the glory of God. So that even as Bach ended his career writing things for children, he was teaching children how to, how to write music and to play fugues, and wasn't very impressive to anyone. But for Bach, he was doing it for the glory of God. Because of the good news that Bach knew, that Jesus had died for him. And so he died, and he lived a life full of meaning and maximum uh, purpose and fullness in his life. And as we close this morning, let me um, invite you, let's pray together that God would reveal his wisdom and the power of his gospel in our hearts so that we'd begin to aim our hearts and our minds at him to live for his glory. Uh, let's, let's pray together that he would do that. Heavenly Father, we do confess that we don't think about your glory as often as we should, and some of us have never thought about it. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see Jesus as full of of the knowledge that we need and the strength that we need? Father and Son and Spirit, we praise you and we give you glory, and we pray that you would give us the benefits of your glory. That in our doubts, in our weakness, in our sins, in our discouragement, that you and your glory would be our strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.